This entire semester, we are leaning into the life of David. And David is such an, an interesting character because, again, I said this last week, larger than life, warrior, poet, songwriter, king. I mean, some of the greatest art in the history of mankind has been surrounding his life and the stuff that he's done. Michelangelo in Florence, Italy, um, made the David statue, which the head of it you're seeing right there. And it wasn't until this year, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not quite as, as young as Mark made me out to be, unless Mark thinks I was in diapers until like age 18. But I appreciate the thought, Mark. But my whole life, I thought that the statue of David was life-size. Like, I thought it was about the size of me. And it wasn't until this year I saw a picture of it on display, and I realized that's how big the statue of David is. This is a person, in case you can't see. Don't get distracted by the nudity, okay? Just, <laughs> I want you to pay attention to the fact that this is a three-story sculpture. Unbelievable. Okay, I figured you're college students. I wouldn't have to pixelate anything on the screen, Okay. But just this idea that David truly was a larger-than-life character and truly was a human being who lived and breathed. But you guys, he also was a pretty atrocious human being. He was. While he had all these amazing attributes, he also failed miserably. I talked last week just about how bad Saul was as a king. God said, if you elect a king, he's going to be bad. And he was. Saul was a train wreck. But you guys, David did a lot of the same things. You heard Mark say it earlier. He took a wife who wasn't his. In our culture right now, we are appropriately grabbing people who are using positions of influence and power to take things that don't belong to them, okay? It's time for those things to stop happening. But David is a picture of that. David is a picture of that. So why does David have a different reputation than Saul? Why do we think of David as the great king? I mean, that we do. When it comes to biblical history, we think of Moses as the lawgiver. Oftentimes, when we think of the greatest prophet, we might, we might put Elijah there. We have like Moses as a representation of the law and Elijah as a representation of the prophets. But when we think of the kings, the great king is David. Why? If he was that kind of a human being. Here's why. Because though David sinned big, he repented big. When God held in front of him the stuff that was broken in his life, his heart broke over that. That never happened with Saul. Saul's heart just got harder and harder and harder as he went along. Not David. You want to get a picture of what David was like? Let me just give you a little piece. Because this is one of the songs that he wrote after his sins were exposed. comes out of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Can you hear it? For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. You'll be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. You hear David's heart in that? I am wrong, God, and you are right. We call that repentance. This moment where David realizes and is grieved over the brokenness he sees in his own heart. And I think it's beautiful 
that in this particular historical document, that they do not hide that stuff. I mean, in the life of David, we actually get to see his warts. We get to see the ugly stuff. He could have had this erased from history. He certainly had the power to do it. No history book shall contain the record of the things that I did wrong. No, the world needs to see them because grace is the space that we live. So not only do you get to see what David did wrong, you get to see God's mercy on him. You get to see the result of it. And he's not alone. You guys, he's not alone. Abraham, Abraham, one of the pillars of the faith, had sex with one of his servants to try to have a child in spite of what God said. Moses murdered a man and ran away. Peter denied knowing who Jesus was as he was about to be crucified. The apostle Paul had Christians murdered, did his best to stamp out Christianity. You guys, we preach a gospel of grace, and so it's a beautiful thing that our biblical heroes aren't perfect, and we don't pretend that they are. As a matter of fact, they're some of the most messed up human beings, but we see God's redemption in their stories. That should encourage you tonight, because most of you in this room are aware of the own, your own mess, the mess that you live in. Now, tonight's not a typical sermon for me. This one's a little bit weird, because every time that I preach, I'll just let you in on how I usually do this, okay? I have... I decide, I don't know, six months out in advance what we're walking through as a ministry. And then when I come to the, the week that I'm preaching, I'll usually spend 12 to 15 hours on a typical week. I sit with the text, and I believe the text has something to say, that it wants to speak to me and change me, and it wants to speak to you and change you. And so it's a process of like, okay, God, what do you want to say through this? Sometimes I come to the text with ideas, and I'm like, oh, I think this is what the text is going to say. And the text is like, that's... It's cute that that's what you want to say, but this is what I want to say. It's like, okay, you win. Text, you win. All right? But when I was going through David's life, what stood out to me for tonight was what the text didn't say. Sort of a gap that we have in David's life. And I was trying to figure out the best way to show this to you, and I, I landed on showing it to you through a timeline. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, David was born in 1040 B.C., Okay, and died in 970. That puts him at 70 years old. And because we're in, you know, BC world, time seems like it's moving backwards. Are you with me, right? The numbers get smaller as you move forward. Okay, but over these 70 years of David's life, if we're looking at it across the timeline, this in 1025 or 1024, something like that, is what we looked at last week. It's when he was anointed by Samuel, which is incredible. A 15-year-old kid, 15 and a half, maybe. Samuel comes in and says, you're going to be king. You're the next king of Israel. And this was the kid who still smells like sheep. He was just out shepherding. Nobody invited him to the king party. Jesse, Jesse says, I do have one more kid. He's out in the fields. They say, get him. It's David. He comes back in, and Samuel says, that's the next king. That's the next king of Israel. I can't imagine. We have, we have no record of David's reaction. But what would your reaction be? at age 15, to be like, hey, you are the next ruler of the country that you live in. You're like, sweet. As a 15-year-old, you'd be like, I got this, right? I don't need to know what I'm doing. I got this. Okay, here's the problem with that. It won't be until about 1010 or 1003 until that actually happens. He becomes the king over Judah but not the king over all of Israel until he's 37 years old. 
So at age 30, he becomes king over part of the country. Age 37, he becomes king over the entire country. You get where I'm going with this? Age 15, you're told this is your calling, and then it's not until age 37 that it's fulfilled. What do we do with the space of delay? When God says, hey, this is going to happen, and you're like, yes, let's do it. And he's like, JK, LOL, not quite yet. You're going to have to wait until you're 37 years old, except he doesn't tell you that timing. So David doesn't know when it's going to happen. I don't have time tonight to fill in all of the places in Scripture this happens, but it's often where God makes a promise. Let me just give you one, okay? Genesis 15, God tells his people, hey, you're going to be held captive in Egypt for 400 years. He says it in advance, and I'm going to rescue you out of Egypt. Then in turn, the people are captured. They are held in Egypt, and generations there live and die waiting for the promise. Why not sooner, God? Why 400 years? That's the question. That's what we want to talk about tonight, because this gap that you see right here, this is the space of delay. This is often the space that we live. When are you going to show up and when are you going to work, God? And what do I do when I'm in that season where I'm not sure what to do? Now, I say all of that, David's life here pretty much has already been waiting anyway. I mean, what do shepherds do for crying out loud except just sort of hang out and wait and the sheep eat over here, and you lead them over there, and then you wait for them to drink, and then you take them to a different pasture, and you wait some more. I mean, David's entire life up until this point has also been one of waiting. So what do we do, friends, when we're in that space where we don't know what to do? I shouldn't have put that up yet. Pretend you didn't see that for a second. What do we do? Well, let me give you the story. So, um, Levi can absolutely attest to the fact that this is true. I'm not very good with timeouts as a dad, okay? My short-term memory is super bad. I have to rely on my phone and other stuff to remind me of things. If Joe calls me you know, at work and says, hey, can you pick this up on the way home? I put a note in my phone because like, I'll just eject that thought somehow like 14 seconds later. I'll, I will mean to do it and have every intention of doing it, but I'll arrive home being like, huh, man, it seems like there's something that I was supposed to do. And this is a problem in discipline because here, here's what's happening. You know, two kids get in a fight and I'm like, okay, you go and stand in the dining room in the corner and you go and you go sit on your bed for the next three minutes, okay? And then the house is quiet and everything's nice and like 17 minutes later I hear, Dad! And it's like, oh, right. Okay, you get a free pass the next three times that you do something wrong, okay? This happens all the time. It happened. We don't do as many timeouts anymore. This happened all the time. Dad, that voice in our house. That's like, oh, no. Did you forget about me? It's like, no. No, I didn't. That was just really bad, and you needed extra time. Okay? Um, you guys, in the space of waiting, that's what it feels like sometimes. We're, when we are in these spaces of being like, Dad, God, did you forget about me? Did you forget that I'm just down here on my own? Was your attention elsewhere? I mean, you know that God's, like, his, he doesn't have the ADHD problems that some of us do in the room. So it's not just an issue of his attention being focused elsewhere and him forgetting, but it feels that way. God, did you forget about me? I'm still here, waiting. I'm in this season. 
There was a season in our marriage where Joe and I prayed diligently. I, I, again, just for sake of time, I don't have time to give specifics tonight, but there was this specific thing that we, we prayed, you guys, for two solid years, and it felt like the answer we got in return was just crickets. God, we're still here, still praying the same thing. Did you forget about us? Do you know that we're still here? He hasn't forgotten. You guys, he hasn't forgotten. As a matter of fact, there's a poet, this is the quote that I, I put up. There's a poet in the 14th century who used this phrase in a prayer devotional, actually. That's a long time ago, 800 years ago, somebody wrote this. They talked about this season called the great cloud of unknowing. Is that not the best description of what I'm talking about? When your faith feels fuzzy and you're like, I just don't know what the next steps are and I don't know that God's making it clear for me. I don't know what to do. I adore this phrase. It, it resonates with the way that I feel in those seasons, this great cloud of unknowing. Isn't it crazy that somebody 800 years ago was feeling that same thing? You guys, this is an old problem. God, did you forget about me? Waiting, you guys, is a control issue. It's all about control. You do not wait when things are in your control. If they were under your control, you wouldn't be waiting, okay? You go to Six Flags, they're the ones in control. They're the ones who have the ride. You're standing in the sun for two and a half hours because you want to be on, I don't even know what they have, whatever it is, okay? Or you're at Disney and you're going to wait six hours for whatever that is because that specific thing is what you want to be on. You're at Walmart. It's not your choice to wait. They got one person checking people out, okay? And they probably were trained yesterday, okay? So it's, you're, just, you're not in control. If you were in control, you wouldn't be waiting. We don't do that on our own control. So by necessity, when we talk about waiting, it's because you are in a space where you are not the one calling the shots, which is part of the reason why we don't like to wait, because I want to be the one who's in control of the timing on this. Now, that's fine when it's Walmart, sometimes. <laughs> It's not necessarily fine when we're talking about life and you're like, God, I don't know what is next and I need your help and I want to sort this thing out. Help me understand what to do. What do I do in the great cloud of unknowing? How do I live this out? Just on our staff, I was thinking about, you know, just uh, the people I work closely with every day. We've dealt with long periods of singleness, feeling lonely like there's no end in sight. We've dealt with the death of parents and grandparents, with infertility, with kids being sick, with cancer, with being uncertain about financial support. Some of you guys are getting ready to graduate in May or in December, and every time you run into a relative, that question, you know, hey, what's next? You're like, please don't. <laughs> please just don't ask that question anymore. What's next? Because it creates in you this anxiety because you're there. You're in the cloud of unknowing where things feel fuzzy. And even right now as I bring it up, you're like, great, it's even in a sermon. I can't even get away from it on Monday night. All right, it's okay. Listen, I need you to understand tonight, God doesn't stand inside time the same way that you and I do. He doesn't think about time the same way that you and I do. Um, in, the, in the book of Second Peter, when Peter's talking about it, he's talking about the end times specifically. And he says, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. Time doesn't work for him the way it works for us. He stands outside it and beyond it. He sees along it. 
The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Peter's trying to tell you God has a different purpose in mind than you do, and therefore his timeline is different. He thinks differently about this stuff because he can. You guys, if a three-year-old comes up to you tonight, it's kind of late for a three-year-old. If a three-year-old comes up for you tomorrow, okay, he's in bed already tonight. If he comes up to you tomorrow and says, I want to be a fireman, what are you going to say? You'd be like, great, you can do anything you want to do. You be a fireman. And he goes, no, 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 no. I want to be a fireman now. Like today, I want to be a fireman. You're going to you're gonna have to say, okay, well, um, you can't. Okay, you, uh, I don't know if you know how doors work yet. Um, you don't know much about fire or water. You can't lift a person. Uh, you can't lift a fire hose. You don't know how to work the truck. You don't have a driver's license. Uh, this is going to be a problem. Like you, you just can't. You can't do that yet. The three-year-old in that moment is not going to understand all of those limitations, but you as an adult understand those things. And the only thing that you can do in that moment is to say, because you can see above and beyond where a three-year-old is at, be patient. The timing isn't right for you yet, but that is an amazing dream. Let's hold on to that. You keep that, but the timing isn't right yet. Can you stand outside of yourself enough to see the God of the universe looking at you and saying, hmm, That dream I can do something with, but the timing you might have to build trust into. The timing is going to be out of your control, follower of Jesus. But you might have to lean into me in the great cloud of unknowing to figure out when the timing is right with me. With me. I used this line in a sermon a few years back. If you're a senior in here as a freshman, you might have heard this little piece. This sermon is new, but not this piece. And I want you to repeat it after me, okay? When I am waiting, I am rehearsing for the times God is preparing. I'm going to have you repeat that back to me a few different times tonight. Because when you are waiting, what you are actually doing is rehearsing for the time that God is setting up for you. Can a three-year-old be a fireman? No. But there are things that he can rehearse and things that he can practice and things that he can prepare and things that he will do that will help him when he gets to the right age, do the things that he needs to do when the timing is right. And as you are waiting, what I want you to hear tonight, because some of you are in that season or you will be in that season or you're walking through life with someone who is in that season, while you are in that season, you are rehearsing for something that God is getting ready to do. And I'm going to give you some things that you can do in that season, that we can do in the season of waiting. The first one I want to give you, I just want to jump back in 1 Samuel a little bit uh, to to 1 Samuel 1. There's this beautiful story. Uh, There's lots of amazing women of the faith in Scripture. Uh, If you've read much of the Bible, you've seen many of them. But one of them is in 1 Samuel 1. We were in 1 Samuel 16 last week, so I'm jumping backwards a little bit, 15 chapters. In 1 Samuel 1, we get to meet a woman named Hannah. And Hannah couldn't have kids and desperately wanted children. And as a part of her story, she was mocked for this. The people around her were just absolutely brutal. So she's in the season where she desperately wants this thing and she keeps crying out to the Lord for it and the Lord isn't answering and the people around her are being really caustic and brutal and it just hurts her more and more. And this is happening for years. You guys, she sits in this pain for years. 
And in 1 Samuel 1.9, Hannah goes to the tabernacle to pray. And in 1.10, it says, Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And Eli, who's one of the priests, hears her. And you know what Eli's response is? He sees hysterical woman there. This is literally his response. Must you come here drunk? Throw away your wine. Okay? It's a very sensitive and loving man. Eli was as a priest at the tabernacle. And in 1 Samuel 1, 15, this is Hannah's response to him. Oh no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, just to clarify. It's not just wine. Nothing stronger either. But I am very discouraged, and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of a great anguish and sorrow. You hear the great cloud of unknowing in Hannah? But do you also notice the phrase that she specifically uses? I am very discouraged and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Hannah sets for us an example of what we do when we sit in that great cloud of unknowing. And if, I, if there are three little pushes I can give for you guys here, okay? But, but one of them is this. The first thing that you can do is to imitate Hannah. You can pour out your heart to God. I'm not going to put these on the screen just because I want you to hear them. You can pour out your heart to the Lord. You can remember that he's the one who's in control. It isn't you, right? Waiting is an issue of control. And so if you recognize right from the beginning that you don't have control, but God, the God of the universe has control, then you can pray prayers that say, you know what, God, help me understand what's happening right now in a way that allows me to trust you. That even if you're not going to give me an answer right now, that you will give me the faith to live in the space of not knowing, the unknowing. And keep going back to God. You guys, it's okay to pray repetitive prayers. You hear me? It's okay to pray repetitive prayers. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18:7 about the persistent widow. And you know what the lesson is in the parable? Pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. God won't get tired of hearing you say the same thing. Pour your heart out to him. Jesus, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and the disciples are sleeping and he keeps going back and talking to the Father and he comes back and he's like, you guys are sleeping again? And then he goes back and prays. It says Jesus prayed the same prayer over and over. That's what Mark tells us. Jesus prayed the same prayer back over and over to the Lord. It's okay to pray repetitive prayers. How do you pour yourself out? Well, it can look different for you. Can I encourage you with prayer? I know we have this picture in our heads that prayer is folding your hands and sitting by your bed and propped up, okay? It can look like that. If you want it to look like that, look like that. You can walk around the campus and pray. You can go for a, a, a drive in your car and you can speak it out loud to God. You can yell it out to him. He will hear you. You can write it down on the page, Okay? And as you get more frustrated, you can press your pen into that page and God will understand in that moment. Are you a musician? Sing it out to him. That's what David did. Pour your heart out to the Lord in whatever form you can, as repetitively as you can, and do it day after day after day. You guys, that's okay. Pour your heart out to God. Because in a season of waiting, that will help you. That's not for God's benefit. You're not earning anything from him. He's like, well, I'm going to wait until you say it the, the 1700th time, and then I'll answer the prayer. No, it's a reminder for you to remember who's in control. 
God knows your need before you pray it. Prayer is not about bringing him up to speed in your life, you guys, in case you didn't know that. He's aware. Prayer is for you to be reminded who's in control, why you are waiting. When I am waiting, I am rehearsing for the times God is preparing. All right, second thing you can do, you can be faithful with what's right in front of you. You can be faithful in those moments with what is right in front of you. Hannah was grieved about this for years, but she also continued to walk through the obedience of other things that God was doing in her. I mean, I talked about the gap in David's life, right? But let's take a look for a second. Because in this gap that we have, I'm going to stand right by the speaker, Austin. Sorry if this does weird things to you. In this gap, this green bar that we have here, take a look at the things that go on in David's life. And I just, all I could do was write enough to fit. There is way more here. When he's 17 years old, he kills Goliath, all right? Then he develops a deep friendship with Jonathan, which we'll learn more about this semester. becomes incredibly important. Saul starts to lose his mind, tries to kill David. Then he marries one of several wives that David will end up taking, um, in 1020. In 1018, he flees to Samuel. In 1017, he flees again. In 1014, Saul spare, he spares Saul's life. In 1014, Samuel also dies. In 1012, David, David spares Saul again. He moves into Philistine territory in 1011. You guys, all of this is happening. Some of it is awful. Some of the things that he's doing in here are mistakes, and some of these things are wonderful. But there's a lot of life happening in between the moment that David is called and the time that he will actually become king. Do you know why? Because there are things that God needs to wean out of his life before he releases him as king of Israel. It's not on David's timeline. But David is trying to be faithful with each next step. Sometimes he gets that right. Sometimes he gets that wrong. And God is moving throughout all of it. Okay? When you are running a marathon... You do not have to know what mile 26 looks like to run mile four. You just run the mile that's in front of you. Take that lesson from a person who has never run a marathon, okay? But I imagine it to be that way, okay? You do not have to know what mile 26 looks like to run the one in front of you. And if you are so obsessed with mile 26, you won't run mile four. Pour yourself out, but be faithful with the thing that is right in front of you. Uh, there was a, um, a, pod, a podcast, maybe, something that NPR did that I listened to years and years ago, and so I'll probably butcher it, but you'll get the gist of it. Um, they did a story on heroes. This, these handful of people, very, very small number of people who, for example, you know, there was a uh, mass shooting or there was a fire or something, and everybody, there's a thousand people running this way and one person running this way. And so this was a story about those people. Just they, they grabbed 10 or 12 different heroes. And so some social researcher had become fascinated with them. So they did a study on these people to say, what makes them different? They wanted to know what makes them different. Are they, do they have the same upbringing? Are they you know, maybe from the same religious background? I mean, these social researchers are like, anything that we can do to figure out how there are similarities between these people who truly behaved differently than everybody else. Because if you interview them, what's a hero say? They say, oh, I just did what anybody would have done in that situation. 
And you're like, not really, because a thousand people were running the opposite direction. You ran into the burning building, okay? That is obviously not true. So I was, I was spellbound by this as they were unpacking these different things. And when they got to the end, you know what the researchers said? They said, you know what commonality we found between them was none. It's like, well, that's kind of amazing that I'm listening to this because I was expecting something better at the end, like that you had a tie for all of them. They said that there was one. There was one thing they said that they all had in common was that each of them lived very selfless lives in tiny ways. And so one of the researchers said, he said, this isn't really the research, this is just my, my gut. At the end of the study, we did not find anything that tied them all together. But what she, she said was, what we found in all of them was that they were living the lives where they made sacrificial decisions in small ways all the time, in every way, every day. And she said, I believe that after a lifetime of doing that, that's the way they saw the world. And so when that emergency happened, they couldn't do anything but that in that moment. So they're the person who made the small decision. I'm going to get in the end of the line to make sure everyone else has food. I'm going to go put gas in this person's car because I think that they need it. I'm going to stop and help that person who's broken down on the side of the road. And after a lifetime of these tiny decisions of being faithful in the little things, when that big thing happened, they were ready. Their character had been developed. You guys, I see that idea where God says, you know what, David, you are not ready as a 15-year-old boy to lead Israel. But when you've had 22 years of life under your belt from now, then let's talk. And when you've taken a step forward and two steps back, and when you've done this and then not this and this and then not this, maybe then, David. When I am waiting, I am rehearsing for the times God is preparing. Third thing that you can do when you sit in the great cloud of unknowing, you can learn to see the holy around you. That one sounds a little bit weird, I know. You learn to see the holy around you. Um, in, in Actually, in New Testament times, there was a group called the Gnostics. And they believed that everything physical and material was evil and everything spiritual was good. But so all objects, anything you could touch with your hands, evil, bad, because it was a part of this world and this world belongs to the devil. And so it's all bad, okay? That takes you to some really weird theological places. And it's a teaching that I see sometimes make its way into the church again today. Here's what I mean by that. Is that you think about work as worldly and your bills as worldly and your homework as worldly. And you just want that spiritual connection with God. And you, you create this divide between what's happening here in the world and what God wants to do. And sometimes when we spiritualize the world that way, we forget that God made this world and everything in it. And even though it is broken and flawed, it belongs to him. Do you know that Adam, when he was created in the garden, had a job? Okay, I don't know what your picture of heaven is. Okay? If your picture of heaven is like mimosas on the beach every day, okay, that's just from here to eternity, I don't think that's the way it's going to work. There is something that God has wired in us 
where it is fulfilling for us to use our hands, to use our creativity, to use our wisdom. And as a matter of fact, when you cash out on that, you feel miserable. It's why I give you seven days of Netflix and you're like, I think I'm depressed. And it's like, really? Do you think you are? Yeah, because you weren't wired to just sit and waste that stuff away. And when you work with something and you create and you see what, there's something in you that feels fulfilled because that you're made in the image of your heavenly father that way. And he's creative and wise and loves to work. And when you tap into that, it taps into that in you. And when you do a great job for the glory of God in your homework or in the job that you have, you are tapping into something and a different kind of economy that God works in in this space. The problem with the other thing is if you really follow through with that, then everything about this earth is bad. Your friendships are evil, but if you could somehow get to the spiritual, no, God can do things in your friendships. Dating relationships, you know what? Those can be godly and beautiful, or they can be twisted and terrible. It depends on whether they're committed to the Lord. Everything we do can be holy. God redeems all of it. He creates this work in us. As a matter of fact, it's like we're dragging the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of earth, and we're saying, come, kingdom of heaven, infect it all. I want my marriage to belong to Jesus. My marriage isn't evil. It was God's idea. Sex isn't evil. That was God's idea. We're, we're redeeming it and buying it back and making what it, what it was always supposed to be. And in the season of waiting, it's very easy to be like, this stinks and this is worldly and I'm just waiting for God to happen. I'm waiting for the miracle to arrive and God's like, you are going to miss a million miracles around you in the meantime if you do that. You guys, so many times I feel like we put a blindfold on ourselves and then we're like, God, show me your work. Why aren't you working? And he's like, I'm working all over the place. Holy Spirit's working all around you right now, but you don't have the eyes to see it. When we're in a season of waiting, when we're in the great cloud of unknowing, one of those things we can do is learn to train our eyes to see the holy that's already around us, the work the Holy Spirit is doing, and join in that work. And God, step by step, that comes into point two, will use our faithfulness to prepare us for something else. And in the meantime, just like Hannah, you are pouring your heart out to the Lord, you guys. Pouring your heart out to the Lord. If that's you, if that describes you where you're at right now, please do that. Please be honest with the Lord. Bring other people around you in that and say, I'm struggling right now. I am praying repetitive prayers over and over and over again because I'm in that cloud in this space. You aren't alone. You guys, you aren't alone. I get it. And your age group feels this pressure. If I talk to college students and if I talk to young adults, which is like the one step ahead of you, where, you know, when you graduate and move into that, that next phase, this is the thing that I hear over and over again. It's difficult to feel like I'm in a holding pattern. You know, like that you're on a plane and they don't have a space for you to land yet, and so you're just doing circles around the airport, and you're like, I'm just kind of waiting for a destination. You guys, it's okay. God has purpose in those spaces. When I am waiting... I am rehearsing for the times God is preparing. I want you to listen to Psalm 27. David wrote this psalm. And he wrote this psalm in a season much like what we're talking about, 
I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but you'll catch the gist of it. Please hear these words. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, my heart won't fear. Though war rise against me, yet I'll be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He'll conceal me under the cover of his tent and he'll lift me high upon a rock. Can you hear David crying out, pouring out his heart in this space? I'm going to choose to trust. I'm going to choose to trust. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not from me. Hide not from me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. And then he closes out Psalm 27 with this. I wanted you to see it. Yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord.